Hi. See you. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Bosu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. So Kim, what are we talking about today? So in this episode, we are talking about Bruno Latour's essay, Why Has Critique Run Out of Steam? And because he asks a question in the title, we're going to change our format a little bit so we can ask his question too. Yeah, that's right. So we are basically uh, handing over the organizational bit to uh, Latour himself. Okay, so my first question is, the question is, what is critique? What the heck is critique? <laughs> I was being respectful to critique, but I guess I shouldn't it, be. And... Well, I realized when we were thinking about how to ask these questions that critique is in our intro. That is very true. And according to Latour, critique needs saving. Or does it? <laughs> Or does it? Maybe does it should it? be or thrown on the or... dustbin of history. So what the heck is critique, Kim? It's a good question. And I don't think that anyone really knows the answer. Right, right. Okay. So I'm just going to... Yeah. I feel like we owe it to our listeners to sort of at least try to give, at least try to define critique in one sentence. Okay. For sure. Critique is reading with politics. That, that that is brilliant. Critique is reading with politics, and uh, but I think, and also I, something that Latour says that we begin with the impulse of reading with politics, but in that process we sort of set ourselves in a relationship of opposition or antagonism with the object of our study, and then we just get so much fun out of the fault finding. It's just, and this is something, something that Latour also says that there is a, there is a very distinct pleasure in this practice, and I completely agree with him on this. Yeah. Because I felt it. I have, I have felt that pleasure, and it's not, it's not always a good thing because. Yeah, I mean, it's the pleasure of intellectual performance. It's, it's the pleasure of being the wittiest guest at the dinner party. Well, yes, but the thing is like, you know, there is also that sort of classical and Socratic pleasure of, you know, the, the pleasure that you find Socrates uh, embodying in Plato's dialogues, which is, yes, being the wittiest guest in the, uh, in the dinner party, but also, I don't know, like the, it's also the pleasure of engendering an ethos. Yeah, but it's connected to the politics question, right? Yes. Absolutely, yes. So, you know, when I say engendering an ethos, it's also engendering the police. And that in itself is, yes, it's, it's and as you very succinctly put it, it's reading with volatility. Yeah, but sure. then the, I think, I think that's also the problem, right? So like his example with the climate change deniers, the, the thing that he sees the problem within it is that other people are reading with the wrong kind of politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, I mean, you know, I think we can do a segue here. Yeah, the next totally. Time. Which it's my uh, turn to ask, right? It's your turn to ask, yes. Okay. 
So then now that we have something of a working definition of critique, mm. has critique run out of steam? I think Latour says that to a certain degrees it has, or at least it has run out of steam in the sense that it has lost or some of its sort of foundational thoughts have lost credibility to a certain okay. extent. And uh, this is, I mean, we should sort of historically contextualize the essay itself. And this is written in the wake of 9-11. Yeah. And this is, it sort of bases its uh, analytic on 9-11. And one of the things that are happening is that it's, it's sort of, uh, there is an effulgence of conspiracy theories in after 9-11. And Latour is writing in response to that. And he is... Uh, does he actually say that what is the difference between critique and conspiracy theory? I don't think he talks about conspiracy theories. Yeah. But actually, so this is not my favorite point in his argument because. What is your favorite point? Uh, my favorite point is the bit where he talks about the sort of, well, where he talks about the rhetorical structure of the way critical arguments work. Right, towards the end with the diagrams. Yeah, although I hate those diagrams, but I think... Um, <laughs> those diagrams look like, I mean, they, they were like made in the 90s with like... I think they were the made with Word. With Word art. Yes, exactly, with Word art. I love Word art as a teenager. <laughs> it was such a cool thing. Oh, man. But, um, oh, actually, my, my really, my, my favorite, favorite point in this essay is the one where he's like, philosophers... Where is it? Let me let me read it to you because it's so good. The problem with philosophers is that because their jobs are so hard, <laughs> they drink a lot of coffee and thus <laughs> use in their arguments an inordinate quantity of pots, mugs, and jugs, <laughs> to which sometimes they might add an occasional rock. <laughs> I love how very famous scholars, I think they arrive at, a certain point in their career when they deliberately try to write in a colloquial vein and it's 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 really cute although you know the pots mugs and jugs i i think i see this as a reference to classicism because if you i think if you look at sort of hellenistic philosophy there's a lot of reference to pottery which which goes to show that how much our presence institutions of or institutional philosophy is still very classicist and sort of yeah but but uh, his point the point that he's making there is not just like the silly one but um but that uh, as he says in the next line the objects of philosophers are never complicated enough which is which is one mode of trying to move away from the classicism of the academy to say, instead of simplifying things to their platonic ideals, we should be dealing with the complexities of the world that modernity has generated. Yeah. And, you know, towards the beginning, he says that when he talks about science studies and what happens, what happens after there has been such a long tradition of scholarship, which says that, well, scientific fact is socially constructed and you know that again like that is something that we are that is a problem that we are facing head-on right now with covid yeah but the thing is and this is something i think the 
essay does respond to is like there is a difference between you saying scientific fact is socially constructed and someone saying Fauci doesn't know shit. COVID is unreal. You know, that's that's where we draw the line between conspiracy theory and a critical overture. Yeah. But so I think, and this is where I disagree with Latour. And maybe it's a good point for the next question. Which I will ask you, which is how will or will critique save the world? Yeah. So if has critique run out of steam and will it save the world? So here's why, here's where I disagree with Latour. The way to solve this problem is by drawing some sort of line and saying, no, this is the real. Like at this point we have hit the real because I, I don't think that solves any problems. And in fact, I am not a hundred percent sure that there is a real. Okay. Or at least that there is a reality that is not the one that we have made. We have made the world that we live in to such an extraordinary extent that recourses to nature as a grounds for fact or truth is really arbitrary. Well, we can we can end on a nebulous note. Uh, <laughs> I think we can end on but oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, let's say goodbye. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for listening to this episode of High Theory. Thank you. We hope you listen to our future episodes and review us on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.